This is The Medical Republic, a podcast for curious GPs. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. This week, we're talking about what happens when you remove your own doctor's coat and have to go seek advice from another GP. What's that really like? And what are some of the professional boundaries you should put in place with that relationship? So that's a bit later. But right now we have our colleague, Maddie Dockerell. She's in the studio with us. Hello. So Maddie is a producer and writer at Wild Health, but she's here today to talk about one of her rather disturbing pastimes. Maddie, welcome. Do you want to explain to our listeners what it is that you do in our office? Yes, I would love to, Felicity. So I work at Wild Health. Wild Health is our digital healthcare subsection, and we run a conference on the 25th of June in Sydney about digital healthcare. So we found out that you were a little bit obsessed with Instagram, Maddie, but particularly following doctors, mainly in the US, that post really gory uh, medical procedures that they're doing. So I got into the office one day and I opened my email and Maddie had uh, sent me quite a horrific photo. From then on, we thought, okay, we've got to get Maddie to do a story for us on the best medical accounts to follow. It was quite graphic. Um, What did it look like? What was this photo? Because I wasn't in this email chain. (laughs) I'm not really sure. Which one was it that I had sent you that day, Frankie? But I thought thought you would be interested as well. But obviously it wasn't well received. Um, It was honestly the biggest boil I have ever seen in my life. It was so horrific. And I think it was being surgically removed, but just like... Oh man, and it was full full body shot as well, so quite confronting. You don't really expect that on Instagram. Yeah, it's not as aesthetically pleasing as your typical Instagram model by a pool, but yeah, it's 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 just something that I like to fill my feed with. So the reason, Maddie, why we decided that you just had to come on the podcast is because there's a very comical side of this, but Felicity and I also wanted to talk about the ethics behind this, because as we know in Australia, there's quite strict laws on what you can publicly release about your patient. I know that the US is a little bit more laxed, and most of these accounts come from plastic surgeons in the States, and they'll post photos, it seems, to almost get more business, uh, although I don't really know how that works for them, because... (laughs) If you see someone sliced open, the last thing you want to do is sign up, but it seems to work for them. Um, So I understand you have some of the best and worst to share with us. So um, what's number one for you? So one of my favorite accounts is one called Medical Talks. Um, They post a lot of variety in terms of some injuries, some like inside the operating theater photos. Um, I've brought one to share today with you guys, if you'd like. Oh my goodness. Can you oh actually, that's disgusting. So right now, Maddie's uh, just turned around her laptop in the studio. We are literally looking right inside someone's open eye socket Um, wow, I didn't even know that that's what, uh, beneath the cornea could look like. Has anyone got like that thing where you faint if you see really gross photos? Cause, (laughs) well, luckily not. Um, I mean, very close to dry retching on, on iTunes right now, but (laughs) 
Yeah, so this one's quite interesting, I think, because the way that the knife has gone through this man's eye, it's missed a lot of the major organs. And it's really cool because, you know, they've included the x-ray in there of the knife, um, you know, penetrating the eye socket. And then, of course, it shows during the surgery and how they've you know handled this knife and (laughs) it includes like the recovery which is actually amazing um the recovery in the sense that this huge knife in this guy's eye and there's only a little some little stitches like that around your eyelid yeah. So okay. those of you who can't see what we're looking at, it's basically like a massive kitchen knife. The one that you use to cut the potatoes has gone right through someone's skull. And is there an explanation for what happened? Like how he got the knife in his skull? Yeah. So then as well, there's a little blurb in the caption um, about this patient carried a stab in the face and the blade penetrated the medial face of the orbit but without causing major damage to the patient's eyes. The knife was removed. The patient was sutured and continues to see well um so yeah overall i think it's really interesting as a non-doctor to kind of get this low down on the kind of treatment of these injuries and some good advice there that getting a blade to the skull is is dangerous Uh. and yeah and also that you have a very incredibly freaky internet search history maddie Look, we can pretty much get away with searching for anything here at the Medical Republic. (laughs) It is true. Hopefully we're not on any blacklists. Oh, we're on all the blacklists. (laughs) So what have we got next? Um, So another one I got for you guys, which I feel isn't as um, full on, is this company called Figure One. And they actually are an educational uh, platform for doctors as well. I really liked this one, which was um, a brain surgery. And in this one, you can see like the open brain <laughs> and this. <laughs> I'm honestly so concerned that I work next to you. <laughs> um. And it's really cool in this one because they're talking about how the patient is a musician who was diagnosed with epilepsy and the way that the surgery is performed, they've sort of mapped out the different areas in the brain. So it's really, I think it's really cool to see it, you know, as close in person as possible. Um, So we were going to run a story on these Instagram accounts, but we decided not to because upon speaking with Australian doctors, we realised that the regulations here are quite strict and you're not allowed to post any photographs on social media of any patients. So figure one is quite popular in the US. I don't think it's very popular in Australia, but um, the way they make sure that it's ethical (laughs) is that they um, only allow doctors to post images where the patient can't be identified at all. Um, So it can be sort of part of the face, but not the whole face. And then they don't post anything online until they've reviewed it. So it goes through a review process. And then if anyone complains, they pull the image straight away. And then they go through a process of checking whether it fits within their ethical parameters. So I thought that was a reasonably good way of doing it. But I still don't think Australian doctors would be getting involved in this project. I think there is a lot of patient confidentiality breach um you know for example in that knife 
photo that we just looked at, you can clearly identify the patient. Um, and, you know, again, even though the patient can't necessarily be identified, they would know that that was them. And also their family would know that that was them. <laughs> and it's also quite easy to re-identify data if you have enough information. So you have what type of wound was it, which location was it in, when did it happen, that's enough to piece together who it was. So, yeah, I, I sets all my alarm bells off, this kind of thing. Yeah, I think um, especially in that knife one, as you were saying, you could fully identify the face. And, I mean, he'd suffered a very severe trauma to the skull. And my first thought is if someone did that to him, that's pretty scary that potentially his location and what hospital he was being treated at uh, and all of that personal information is then also out there. I can imagine it's terrible in trauma situations where the person may be at risk of further violence. Usually this kind of case study would be published in the MJA or that kind of thing, which is specifically for the purpose of educating other doctors. But this kind of content is really medicine as entertainment and I think that that's a bit problematic. Not to attack your lifestyle, Maddie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, yeah, I completely agree, Felicity. I think... um, It is medicine for entertainment. Um, And as well, a lot of the pictures can be of, you know, infants and young children. So I don't necessarily understand how the consent would work around that. Like, for example, you can see a cesarean delivery. (laughs) And, you know, the entire child's face is, identified and you know that's on the internet forever now this baby's first breath into the world and I know there's this huge discussion that's happening at the moment around parents sharing photos of their children on social media and then the child reaching the age of 10 or 12 and really objecting to it and feeling quite violated by that um so yeah it's an interesting discussion Thank you, Maddie, so much for coming in today and sharing with us the most disgusting parts of Instagram. Uh, I don't think I can stomach anymore. How about you, Felicity? Yeah, it's it's a big contrast. Um, earlier today, Maddie was the one presenting us all with cake to celebrate one of our birthdays. Um, <laughs> and now if we're getting a good treat of <laughs> gruesome uh, medical images from the internet. So it's, it's a good balancing act you've got there. That's why I brought the cake in earlier before we did the gory Instagrams, guys. Yeah, very, very considerate and thoughtful. But it's not the last that you've heard of the gruesome today. There's more in quirky history a bit later in the show. This week's hot topic is from Dr Richard Kitt, a GP based in Brisbane and the chair of the AMA Council of General Practice. So at the AMA National Conference, uh, we successfully put up a motion asking for the AMA Federal Council to call upon the government to mandate a minimum 16% of the federal health budget be directed to general practice. Now, this might sound like a high figure for some people, and people might wonder how we got to it, but um, the AMA has already been calling for 10% of the total health budget um, be directed to general practice and primary care. 
and that works out to be effectively the same as 16% of the federal health budget. And the reality is that um, general practice is very much in the federal health space, whereas hospitals are um, very much in the state budgets. Um, at the moment, we're looking at being about 35 4% below that. So it's, uh, it's a modest but significant um, additional investment. We're asking for new money, probably in the order of about $3.5 billion a year, um, which uh, compared to the whole health budget is, is not a huge ask. And we know Minister Greg Hunt um, at the AMA National Conference uh, spoke to the fundamental importance of general practice and um, that you know we're number one in the world in clinical outcomes, but not really in access or equity yet. And general practice is under terrific pressure. We are the most efficient part of the health system, but we are under duress, and something has to change. We've had over 20 years of health reforms with, in many cases, recommendations to strengthen and increase capacity and access in general practice and primary care. But there's been no real significant new investment. And for my part, I believe that's one of the reasons the healthcare homes was not... Um, taken up with great enthusiasm because it was another example of general practice being asked to do more for less. And this has to change. We really do need some real new investment. And we know from looking around the world and even here that where you make an investment in general practice, you get real returns. I sincerely hope that the federal government will um, agree to this. Um, it makes a lot of sense to have that transparency and have a, a mandated minimum and it can lead to some long-term planning on um, evidence-based new investment that will um, greatly improve the capacity um, and access to general practice. And that's what this government wants. This is what Minister Greg Hunt wants, is improved access and equity, and this is one way to do it, to ensure it. I'm joined by Dr Simon Coap. He's a Sydney-based GP and we've just listened to his presentation here at the GPCE all about being a doctor and treating yourself, whether that's ethical, or being a doctor's doctor and what that's like. Welcome to the program, Simon. Thank you, Francine. So just to start off, treating yourself as a doctor, how prevalent is this? Why should you do it or why should you definitely avoid it? Well, look, there aren't exact figures on the prevalence of self-treatment in Australia, but from a number of studies done here and elsewhere in the world, I'd have to say it's certainly pretty prevalent. In most studies, anywhere between 50 and 90% of, uh, of doctors do self-treat at some time. And interestingly, in the room today, we only had, I think, one doctor who put up a hand and swore blue that she'd never treated herself. So it's certainly quite a, a common thing to do. Uh, as to whether it's a, a wise thing to do, I think is a more kind of interesting question. And I guess um, there's not necessarily absolutely hard and fast rules about it, but there are certainly a number of pitfalls uh, involved in, in self-prescribing. And if doctors are going to venture into self-prescribing, they certainly need to be well aware of, of what they are. So what are the most common self-prescribing habits that doctors fall into? Look, I think there's a number of, of ways in which GPs can, or doctors in general can self-prescribe, and I guess they kind of vary in, in, in how 
open they are to some of those pitfalls we talked about. I mean, I guess the most common situation is someone, you know, it's an acute self-limiting illness. Someone needs some antibiotics or something and their doctor's not around and they give themselves a script to tide them over. Uh, for a, so, sort of a relatively acute and, and self-limiting illness. I think of another situation that's fairly common uh, is where people are on a, a medication for a chronic illness and they've simply kind of run out of their script or they've lost their script and they're, they're prescribing to tide themselves over uh, until they see their regular practitioner again. So I guess they're some of the common and, and I suppose what you'd think of as relatively benign forms of self-prescribing. I mean, I, I guess the other circumstances, though, where, where certainly it would become a lot more troublesome is either on the nature of the condition, like, for instance, I, I think everybody would agree that it's very unwise to initiate treatment for a chronic illness yourself. Uh, and obviously there are certain substances, particularly substances of dependence, that you'd be extremely unwise to prescribe to yourself. And indeed, uh, as far as Schedule 8 drugs go in, in um, New South Wales, it's illegal to do that. And of course, I mean, I guess we should mention that in, in some states like Victoria and Western Australia, it is actually illegal to self-prescribe any medication. Uh, you know, there obviously are a number of pitfalls in self-prescribing. I mean, one is, of course, that GPs are not necessarily, or doctors aren't always very good self-diagnosticians. So, you know, you may be diagnosing the wrong ailment. Uh, often the sort of process that you go through to, to reach that diagnosis is going to be completely different when you're applying it to yourself to when you're applying it to a patient. Obviously things like, you know, there are no boundaries involved, there's no difference between the, the doctor and the patient and that lack of boundaries can lead to all sorts of other things influencing your clinical decision. Uh, you're also not keeping records on your own treatment. You know, you're highly unlikely to be monitoring yourself with the same sort of rigour as, as somebody else would be. So even in those relatively benign situations where, you know, you might be prescribing ongoing treatment for, for a, a, with a medication that's been initiated by someone else, you run the risk of missing out on the, the other things that would go along with the prescription, like the, you know, the monitoring, the checking of various other things that might be affecting your illness. So in the ideal world, you wouldn't prescribe for yourself and you'd find your own GP, uh, but what are the boundaries then with that relationship of being a doctor's doctor? Yes, I guess that's another area when either you are the doctor or when you're treating other doctors. And, and certainly I think, I mean, the, the long and the short of it there as far as treating other doctors goes is that, you know, essentially uh, I think the evidence suggests that the best way to approach that is to treat doctors really like everybody else. There are temptations to, uh, you know, either offer more treatment or less treatment or, or to do casual sort of corridor consultations or to you know, accept a colleague's self-diagnosis and, and simply enact whatever treatment they think they might want. But look, I, I think the long and the short of that one is that, that yes, both you and, and the doctor-patient are going to get, you know, it's going to be a much more successful relationship and experience if, in fact, you know, we treat colleagues pretty much in exactly the same way we treat everybody else. After all, if you're treating other patients properly, then there's no real possible reason why you would treat a doctor-patient any differently. So within that, you don't treat a GP any differently from any other patient that walks through the door, but what about professional courtesy? Should you be charging doctors to come see you as a doctor? Look, that, that's a, a tricky one, and interestingly, in, in the room today, we asked about that, and I think the majority of GPs here said that they did extend professional courtesy and that they had been in receipt of professional courtesy, by which I mean, you know, they weren't charged any sort of gap fee. Obviously, I think that's a very sort of personal 
uh, issue. There are obviously no real rules around that. It's just that I, I think some of us feel that it's quite a nice tradition, a way of us acknowledging each other as being you know, all members of the same broad profession. But, you know, there are other people who feel no in the interest of treating a doctor exactly the same as all other patients that should extend to the way you charge them. So, look, no rights or wrongs there. Uh, I think, you know, that's just purely a, a kind of purse. But as, as always, really, with matters of billing, the important thing is to obtain informed financial consent. And, you know, if you're not a bulk billing doctor, that you need to make that clear from the beginning. Yeah, so there's also a lot of reasons um, that doctors may be hesitant to go and see another GP. I know that one of them is mandatory reporting. Is that something that you've personally come across when you see other doctors or something that is a problem for many people? Well, fortunately, I think it's a fairly rare circumstance that you have to uh, undertake mandatory reporting, but it is an obligation under APRA that if you think that another doctor is engaging in what they call notifiable conduct, and not, not just on sort of faint suspicion or innuendo, but that you have reasonably solid grounds, actual evidence for believing that they're engaging in notifiable conduct, which covers such things as, um, you know, being intoxicated, being significantly impaired or uh, sexual boundary crossing and things like that, then, you know, you are under an obligation to report them to APRA. And, you know, most doctors are, are aware of that. And that may be a factor that influences whether some doctors will seek attention from other doctors. But... As I said, it's a rare event, but under those circumstances, then you know that is an obligation that we all have. And are there any other boundary issues or what not to do when you're picking a GP as a doctor? Look, I, I think when you're picking someone to be your own doctor, I guess, look, I think the thing there is we really do want to ensure that they are independent. I think generally it's a much better idea not to have a doctor in your practice, not to have someone that you... Uh, see or know socially so you know, I think you want to get yourself the benefit of independent professional help um, you know obviously you may be influenced by the the reputation I suppose of, of the doctor in the practice and naturally you're going to go to a, a practice or a doctor that has a good reputation but that is you know in, in other ways quite separate from your personal and professional life not always completely separate that's not always achievable but but you know that there is a reasonable distance there And so there might be a couple of questions now running through GPs' heads. Uh, Are there resources that they can look up to find out more about this? Look, certainly there is a thing called the Doctors' Health Advisory Service, which you can just Google. And um, that's an organisation that's been around for quite some time, dedicated to the health and welfare of of colleagues. Uh, They have a a helpline. It's not an emergency service, but they certainly have a helpline that you can call seven days a week and they mostly deal with issues relating to stress, finance, mental health, that sort of thing, family problems and for certainly for people who are in the RACGP, uh, the RACGP also runs a GP member support program uh, which can offer resources and counselling uh, you know, for a, a variety of, of stress and other related problems that, that GPs and members might be experiencing. Thank you so much, Simon, for coming on The Medical Republic. And I guess everyone should be going to the doctor more often. (laughs) People either go to the doctors not enough or too much. (laughs) They need to go to the doctor the right amount. But certainly I very much encourage all doctors to make sure that they have their own doctor. So now it's time for our quirky historical fact. And we've got Maddie back uh, in the studio. And she's going to tell us about uh, something she came across on Instagram, which is quite shocking, really. Yeah, so one of the pages that I followed, an autopsy uh, account, she did a really interesting post about celebrity autopsies. 
Um, so what I found really interesting about this was the fact that um, in America, once a person dies, the coroner report becomes public record. So even though, you know, these celebrities like Michael Jackson, Brittany Murphy, Whitney Houston and like Marilyn Monroe um, were these larger than life personalities and had these, you know, crazy private public lives. Um, these autopsy reports are public record and they go into incredible detail, um, like descriptive anatomical detail about the scars on their bodies. And I just think it's so crazy invasive of their privacy. And, you know, a lot of these people still have family that are alive so I can't even imagine the fact that that's out there publicly on record and that's legal it's just baffles me yeah it definitely feels disrespectful to the families and the people who knew that person um what do you think Francine yeah I'm just actually lost for words it is another reason why I don't want to die um certainly not in America (laughs) (laughs) certainly not in the U.S. Well, thanks, Maddie, for shocking us once again and bringing us a very gruesome and somewhat ethically challenging, for the first time, quirky medical history. Yeah, I feel really uncomfortable. That's it for the Medical Republic this week. Next week, we're going live to Wild Health in Sydney. And if you can't make it, we'll still catch you on our podcast next time. (laughs) 